this is Contra Radio from Contra.Swap. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Contra.Scot. Is Britain in decline? Something we've heard a lot about in Scotland, especially since the 2014 independence referendum. But in recent years, there's been something of a restoration for the British establishment. How meaningful is this? How long-lasting could it be? Are the roots of Britain's contemporary problems deep in the history of its formation? I'm joined to discuss all these questions by Samuel McElhagger, uh, who is a writer, essayist, reviewer, um, based currently in England, and the author of several interesting pieces, including a, a long essay at Palladium magazine called Britain is Dead. Samuel, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much. Glad to be here. One of the provocative claims you make in the article is that uh, elites appear to have fundamentally lost interest in governance in Britain. Mm-hmm. What did that? What did you mean by that? What does that yeah. tell us about your your thesis about uh, about British historical development? Sure. So I mean that actually comes not from a direct statement from me, but I think a quote from the piece where I interviewed a former. High Ambassador, High Commissioner for Trinidad, and I think he was also an ambassador in Kenya, Arthur Snell, on British governance issues. He was one of like quite a few people high up in the civil service or in Westminster that I interviewed for this piece. Um, I think he made the statement that essentially, apart from a few posh bits of the army, um, the uh, British elite had fundamentally lost interest in governing or public service, um, more accurately. Um, so obviously this is a statement I agree with, um, though it's, you know, didn't come from me. Um, but I mean, yeah, the, the sort of genesis of the article, I think was, I mean, obviously there's been a large discussion around sort of structural decline and feckless elites, both from a kind of like centrist rhetoric that you find at like LBC, James O'Brien or something, a more realistic, uh, discourse around feckless elites and responsible adults in the room. <laughs> versus and you know a, a broader more systematic totalizing um look at why elites are failing from a leftist or a radical perspective um, and obviously those have been floating around since you know boris and then the, the failed trust administration um but a lot of the initial sort of spark for the the piece and this concern with elites disinterest in governance came from personal um experience being a kind of um one might say insider outsider to the uh, the world of the british elite i kind of i come from what george orwell might have termed or has termed a sort of lower upper middle class background having sort of gone through the uh, proving grounds of the traditional british elite i.e public school uh, in my case st andrews and then a graduate degree at cambridge and having initially sort of been steeped quite uncritically in a public school in um this sense of national service um which has manifested both on the left and the right and someone like you know clement attlee or tony ben and then on the right listless amounts of prime ministers but yeah there's this deep sense of that was what all this was for all this formation and uh education was for was you know uh, essentially for some kind of selfless pursuit of public service i think as i reached maturity and as I sort of entered 
the more internationalized um, sort of establishments of universities and then employment, I realized that this was, you know, a myth of the bygone era and that actually um, our so-called national elites had been in a fundamental way internationalized, had taken on a cosmopolitan uh, financial bent that precluded them from a real grasp either of the kind of petty bourgeois or the working classes um, in the regions that they came from. Um, and that the, the mechanism that had essentially worked to create national elites in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, uh, so, you know, Oxbridge and public schools, had transformed in a way into a broader mechanism to create an international elite. I mean, Rishi Sunak is a case in point, right? We can talk about him. Um, that fundamentally, I think, doesn't understand the politics on the ground. And so, yeah, I saw sort of peers from school and university, uh, very few of them sort of going into the civil service, very few of them going into traditional jobs in the army, almost all of them filtering into a consultancy or analyst roles at you know large investment banks. You know, then I started reading into Tom Nairn and uh, uh, sort of Perry Anderson. And yeah, you see this reflection of a kind of elite that is fundamentally out of touch with the country i think that's um that's interesting i didn't know that you you'd had a kind of personal background in this milieu and observing these developments up yeah i mean that that i hadn't sort of like uh written about the anecdotal sense in the piece which is you know pretty analytical but i think it, it came from this sense of having one foot in and one foot out i mean i don't come from this what might one might call sort of globalized pmc um my sort of trajectory through these institutions was via scholarships. Um, and I come from a kind of, you know, like regional bourgeois background that is a lot more connected to place um, than the people one might meet at, say, St. Andrews or Cambridge <laughs> with sort of parents who are international lawyers or, you know, work for international corporations. But I think those mechanisms are now are in place at places like St. Andrews or Cambridge to... Um, you know, the, the incentives are built in for one to internationalize oneself, to sort of separate oneself from the polity or the potentiality for mass politics or any kind of coalition with the broader population. And, to uh, you know, the only way to really pursue profit is to sever oneself from those local connections. Yeah, and, and sort of melt into this sort of horizontal networked international elite, right, rather yeah. than, as you say, a kind of place-based or even closely institution-based kind of elite. but. Yeah. I mean, could you perhaps just very quickly summarise your understanding of Nairn and Anderson, um, Nairn and Anderson's ideas, so that we can, you know, as a prelude to then discussing, sure, because I suppose, I mean, Nairn, the Nairn Anderson thesis takes us back into Britain's past and says that the British elite failed to emerge into um, modernity in in mm -hmm. the way national elites did in other burgeoning nation states yeah how does that then relate to what you've just described as this kind of elite sociology of hyper modernity of kind of globalization so what i would say is that we have sort of two uh, two overlapping uh periodizations here or two overlapping trends that that sort of account i've just given in a way contradicts the nairn anderson thesis which is that there is this kind of bourgeois aristocratic very particularly British governing elite. Um, and obviously I've given a, an account of a kind of, yeah, hyper-globalized, hyper-financialized um, elite. Um, but I think these things kind of coexist or they're a contra they contradictorily sort of coexist 
within themselves. Obviously, the Nan Anderson thesis comes from the idea that Britain was essentially the first to uh, industrialize. Um, and so because it was this kind of first mover in inter- sort of international in- industrial modernity, it was able to preserve a late early modern um, political settlement that goes all the way back to the glorious revolution of 1688 and even further back to the union of crowns in the uh, early 17th century um and their contention then and anderson's uh, contention is essentially that um the aristocracy and the gentry um of britain became proto-capitalist and displaced the revolutionary potential of a sort of modernizing bourgeois faction which was then subordinated into a kind of sepoy-like uh, role as a kind of junior partner in the British Empire. And that one at the same time, the, the rise in industrialization and the expansion of empire allowed for a release valve on bourgeois frustrations at the uh, sort of governing aristocratic elite. Um, so, I mean, I was actually looking through the prime ministers and just double checking their backgrounds on Wikipedia to see how well that cohered to this Anderson and thesis. And so if you look at, I think there's been 56 prime ministers, um, only about eight come from what one might call commercial bourgeois mercantile backgrounds. Um, there's obviously been a few working class or lower middle class prime ministers from the 20th century, but the vast, vast majority of them come from landed wealth. Um, and so there wasn't ever this pronounced contradiction between what one what one might call in a Marxist sense movable property, e.g., uh, movable means of production, um, factories, mercantile wool merchants, etc., and the landed interest. Often they were one and the same, or if they weren't, you know, there was a guard against a kind of upsurge in bourgeois um, political aspirations through a kind of mechanism of buying land, uh, entering into elite education, and sort of diffusing that sense of uh, class consciousness on the behalf of the bourgeoisie there's a total sort of totalizing effect to their thesis so not only does this first mover advantage uh, in early industrialization and the early sort of constitutional settlement in the 17th century not only does it affect the elites but it also affects um mass politics and working class politics so they ter- coin a term laborism um to describe these sort of mutated um left-wing uh, trajectory of the british working class, which is unlike, say, the proto-Marxist Social Democratic Party in 19th century Germany, or the, um, you know, Jacobin tradition in France, or the traditions of 1848. It's very much, you know, a reformist tradition steeped in Methodism, Fabianism, and gradualism. And they place that distinctiveness on the British left, also back in sort of the 17th century. And so, yeah, this is very much like a totalizing thesis uh, about the, the state of the UK generally. So if Britain bears the marks of this backwardness, Mm. um, how do we explain the phenomenon you just described, the decline of attitudes about um, public service, the unmooring of British elites, their integration into new kind of horizontal networks of Mm. uh, globalisation, the breakdown, not just of public institutions, you know, like the civil service um, and so on, but, I mean, obviously this is very apparent in our party political system. Uh, our parties no longer seem to construct constituencies in the ways mm-hmm. that they used to. 
again, there's a lot more in common between a kind of, I think of it as like the kind of people's vote effect. I mean, during during the kind of people's vote campaign, you saw the governing centre of British public life, and it was very much cross-party, and it was very much alienated from the individual party constituencies and so on. That is a formation of elite politics that you can see replicated in lots of different national contexts around the globe. Does the unmooring of elites in that way, in your view, does that contradict the Neon Anderson thesis or can Mm. it work alongside it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say that in a way it it doesn't contradict the Nan Anderson thesis in some ways. So for instance, there was always a reluctance on the part of this kind of bourgeois aristocratic synthesis, synthesized governing elite to allow the formation of, for a while at least, popular mass parties. So in the 18th century, we had these kind of amorphous cross-class um coalitions, the country party and the court party under Robert Walpole, um, which look a lot more like our amorphous sort of individualized um, minority interests, cross-party coalitions we see now, right? So in that sense, we've returned in a way to that early 18th century mode of governance. Of course, also people like Perry Anderson point out that the building up of the Conservative Party into the sort of first modern mass party in the early and mid 19th century was a sort of pressure valve um, to stymie working class interests and ambitions. And again, I'm sure we'll come to David Edgerton, but um, we obviously have to distinguish between a relative decline and absolute decline and the feedback between the two. And so in a way, the unmooring from particular interests, from place, from regions, from particular national industries of the uh, the elite and into a kind of financialized horizontal plane might be a sort of new sort of sui generis development that doesn't find roots in uh, you know, England or Britain's deep history. And that is the result of a sort of global system that it has overtaken in its determining power, sort of national and regional and continental systems. Um, I think that's worth thinking about, that in a way there is buried in the narrative of decline a sort of myopic overpowering of the special British case, if that makes sense. I mean, the Germans had it as well. They had a thing called the Sonderweg, uh, the special path. And so in a sense, I mean, this is what Edgerton accuses Anderson and Nen of, is that despite their predictions of British decline, they sort of fatally underestimate Britain's uh, vulnerability to larger geopolitical resource material politics. We'll get back to that, but one thing I don't, I mean, what I thought you might be about to say is mm. that the very backwardness of the British elite up to, you know, before the kind of Thatcher era meant that this elite was, uh, I was going to say, either well positioned or vulnerable to, to, to globalisation in the sense that it was already. Um, the kind of British patrician elite uh, already had such a weak relationship to wider social layers in British society that it found it tremendously easy to break off those connections that did, that those connections were already so patronising and hierarchical uh, and so re- already so kind of clash-ridden um, that the British elite, perhaps more than other elites, found yeah. it easy to establish itself as this kind of preeminent financial yeah. globalizing sort mm. of class. And, and if, if I go 
back to the, the, these kind of, I was saying that sort of the, the idea of the public school Oxbridge trajectory took regional elites and essentially nationalised them. And so if you were from Yorkshire or Scotland or Wales, you became British. You became a member of the British elite through that sort of denaturing platform. I definitely think once you have that structure in place, it's easier to sort of go one step higher. I would agree with you there. Um, and I mean, so in the piece, I talked to an academic called Matthias Brinkman, who taught PPE at Oxford. And he, he said that that kind of um, mechanism of regional denaturing or de-identifying that goes on at Oxbridge wasn't really present in German universities, for instance, where they very much more, and in France as well, very much more serve, serve their local communities and local middle classes. And so, yeah, I do agree with you that that, that potentiality was always there. I was actually thinking of Adam Curtis's 1990s television series, The Mayfair Set, which chronicles the sort of start of the asset stripping and merger and acquisition process in the 1960s and 70s against British companies. Um, and the, the protagonists there who are sort of buying up hostile takeovers of, you know, medium-sized to large-sized British manufacturing firms and stripping their assets are two aristocrats. It's um, Jim Slater and Sir James Goldsmith, who are both sort of upper middle class, upper class Oxbridge types. And so you can see that process sort of playing out already, even in the 60s and the 70s. You mentioned uh, David Edgerton, and to, mm. to anyone who's listening who, who doesn't know, Edgerton is the is a historian, an author of uh, kind of new ish study of british history called the rise and fall of the british nation mm -hmm. where uh and his argument in a certain sense is contrary to the neon anderson thesis in that he views the post-war period in british history as one of transformation where the post-empire british state took a sort of national nation state developmental course and a new british nation was forged out of the the decline of the british empire and so his analysis tends to um, focus on the British state's capacity for renewal uh, mm. in, in, in that sense. But I was, I was interested, I mean, it, it's become a kind of debate between these two positions, right? Mm. That sometimes the Neon Anderson argument is called uh, declinism. These arguments about the relative historical newness of the British nation state, you know, there was a, there was a real process where there, was, mm. uh, there were kind of class blocks built between the elites and wider sections of the population. You talked about the Tory party. It's explosive growth, I believe, to sort of 2 million members. There was also an explosive growth in trade unions and, and the creation of a stable British social democracy relatively in the form of the Labour Party and so on. There's a kind of shadow boxing between these two attitudes. How mm. exclusive are they? How, First of all, how persuasive do you find Edgerton's argument? And... and mm. How persuaded are you that uh, these two perspectives are really in conflict with each other? Yeah, so I, I, I think I take Edgerton's point that analysis of decline is always sort of a moving target. It's a bit like Zeno's arrow. It never really reaches the point of inflection in the sense that um, when one writes about decline, in, in a sense, it tells you more about the period the person's writing in and the anxieties and political concerns of that period than it maybe does about history. You, know, you can look at Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall and, um, of the Roman Empire and how that speaks to a enlightenment prioritisation of civic virtue over Christian morality or Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West and this kind of post-World War I despair or even Adorno and uh, Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment does much the same thing. So I take his case that 
decline is a subjective measure or expresses a sense of one has to have some kind of sense of political teleology um, or political priority to position a sort of horizon that decline is falling away from. Edgerton is sort of a radical empiricist in lots of ways. He kind of comes closely from the, there's a historian called Leopold von Ranke, um, who's a German empiricist historian. And Edgerton very much comes from that, um, one might say, diachronic way of looking at history. Anderson has you know, publicly criticised Edgerton in the New Left Review for failing to sort of have a theoretical backbone or any yardstick to measure British history against. But he's essentially theoryless. I do think that Edgerton and Anderson can be reconciled. They're not strict binaries. Edgerton accepts, I think, that there has been profound decline, especially since 2008. He wouldn't dispute that. I mean, he's been very open in like The Guardian and The New Statesman that we're in a historically unprecedented uh, situation as of 2022. Um, I think what he takes aim at is this idea of a Sonderweg, like a, that there is this deep, determined British particularity that comes from the uh, 17th century or 18th century. He would place causality of Britain, the causality of this unique British decline probably in the 70s and 80s. And he would place weight, I think, more on outside factors. So uh, the rise of neoliberalism, um, rise of OPEC and the you know fundamental dis- disempowerment of Western oil and natural resource uh, politics. Um, and would place some weight on internal politics around Thatcher and the decline of manufacturing. And he would essentially say that before the late 70s or 80s, like you said, the British nation state emerged in 1945 and underwent a period of not linear or exponential, but steady growth uh, up until the late 70s that was predicated on the Cold War. Uh, the military industrial complex and a kind of social democratic developmentalism led by uh, Clement Attlee, Ernst Bevan, the um, foreign secretary, and then later on by Wilson. He would say that the concern that we have now with current decline shouldn't be sort of projected back into the past. It's an obscuring factor. And that also it's kind of fatalistic or it restricts our agency to um, challenge the sort of both domestic forces of reaction and neoliberalism and also sort of global forces. Anderson, obviously, um, Nairn's not around anymore, um, but Anderson, Perry Anderson, has sort of said that that is essentially too radically empirical or too technocratic and that, you know, from a Marxist standpoint, we can sort of produce a almost like Hegelian history of, um, you know, the um, uh, zeitgeist of British state um, and that the seeds of growth, sort of the... Um, the things that allowed Britain its domination in the 18th and 19th century were also the contradictory, you know, were the seeds of its destruction. Um, so this composite elite of the bourgeois and aristocracy, um, this kind of organic, non-defined constitutional uh, settlement, you know, that came in stages, a general bent towards a humanistic, classically educated land-based elite. Um, yeah, the uh, the impulse towards rentierism. But I think these two things can be reconciled, e.g. that we can we can accept some of the uniqueness of our current moment of decline and also accept deep, deep historical causation. The way I like to think of it is that the sources that Nairn and Anderson are looking at in the 17th century are not 100% deterministic. What they do, in effect, is they limit our range of possibility. They sort of narrow the lens of the spectrum, narrow the lens of possibility. And within that range, outliers can happen uh, new developments can happen, agency is available, and 
breaks and sunderings and ruptures are available, but there is still this kind of like closing off of potentiality that happens in the um, 17th century. And I think that's the kind of reconciliation point between the two authors. Yeah, we'll get on to the um, we'll get on to the kind of contemporary political situation in a bit, but I sometimes feel like if you'd asked me in 2016 and I had both the Neon Anderson and the Edgerton arguments in front of me. In 2016, when we just had the independence referendum in Scotland, mm. Corbyn's seizure of the Labour Party and the Brexit referendum with the vote for leave, I think I probably would have agreed more with the Neon Anderson thesis. But I feel like in 2023, I'm leaning <laughs> um, more towards the idea of a British state that's relatively robust and and, and prepared to fend off challenges and developmental problems so i don't there is a problem where you kind of swing between these attitudes based on your um Mm. perception of contemporary political i'm not sure i would see the british state as being currently as being robust but i think the emphasis on there was something about the scottish referendum and the brexit referendum that fed into a particularly sort of British reading of history, a kind of almost reverse Whig, Whig history. You could kind of call the Nairn Anderson thesis a kind of reverse Whigism. Whereas the the current sort of trust debacle um, and cost of living crisis are very much exog- exogenous. I think that plays into this kind of Edgerton thesis of the plucky, developmental, socially democratic British nation state in a sea of sort of geopolitical forces. So I, I do understand where the kind of different geopolitical and different historical moments lend themselves to one or the other. I should say I don't I don't think like I don't think the British state is currently in a robust position. I take your point that in a sense, like everyone's a declinist now, right? Um, and that's maybe yeah, been something obscured by the label of declinism, is that everyone in this debate recognizes that the British state it's right. quite a sorry position. Beyond, and it's like a tiny rump of sort of neoconservative, neoliberal um, Tory MPs. Yeah. Well, exa- I mean, I, the, I mean, the, 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 the shallowness of civic life, I think, is now apparent to everyone. I mean, I've just finished writing an article where I kind of survey the scene of Britain's parties in particular. And in every one of these political parties now, there's practically no room at all for any kind of real democratic life, whether that's the Tories, Labour or the SNP. It's quite an astonishing, like, you know, degree of the decline of liberal democracy, um, apart from anything else. And I think that points towards the kind of brittleness of of the British state form, really, that it's struggling to draw um, Mm. wide layers of the population into an active participation in democratic life. And when that does happen, it's stomped out as quickly as possible people become distracted i mean i'm I'm thinking of anton jaeger's um piece in the point recently um hyper politicization and there is this kind of contradiction that as the british state and sort of civil society which is separate from the state become more brittle more hollowed out the potential forces that might topple it or reform it um also become weaker um, and so this is kind of like dual decline of both, you know, the the potential reforming or revolutionary forces that might, you know, transform the British state or sunder it and the British state itself. And so where once I might have imagined back in 2014, um, the potentiality for a kind of populist moment of revolt or at least reform, reform. Um, now it seems like, yeah, a kind of longer, slower, 
fragmentation might be what's in order or what's down the road and that that doesn't come from a kind of mass populist organization but from some kind of exogenous shock yeah there's a line at the end of another article you wrote uh, reflecting on the contribution of tom nairn where you you argue in the conclusion you know maybe the breakdown of the british state is what's standing in the way of the breakup right so that in in a strange kind of way the British civic and public sphere has become so weakened by mass alienation from political institutions, by um, the decoupling between elites and um, and the public, and also just by the rotting of our entire civic infrastructure through austerity, the running down of the public sphere, the precarity and the vulnerability that so many people experience in the modern British economy, um, that this is becoming in itself a break on the development of the forces that could break up the British mm-hmm. state. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Nairn, right, in like a kind of very orthodox Marxist manner, thinks that there is the necessity for, for Scotland to become a free and independent country, for instance. There's a necessity to kind of build up a nationalist bourgeois element that never really emerged properly in Scotland through i mean he was writing this in the 70s and 80s so at that point it was through the um discovery of north sea oil and that he thought potentially similar things would happen in wales and that northern ireland would basically be reabsorbed into the republic and that england would be kind of become this through uneven and combined development become this kind of austere underdeveloped rump and you know there was some idea of this i think in the civic nationalism of the SNP. But as we've seen recently, um, there's been a, a crisis in the what one might call the SNP's uh, counter-hegemonic or counter-elite position, whereby they have become, I think, as identified with the problems of the Scottish polity as Westminster has. And so the scapegoating mechanism of, you know, passing the buck onto Westminster, not that Westminster isn't also sort of guilty for these problems but the the scapegoating or release valve of passing the buck onto Westminster is no longer sort of working once we've passed through these gateways of sort of the uh, Alex Salmon court affair the Peter Murrell allegations and Nicola Sturgeon's downfall and we see you know for instance you know the rotting of public services the ferry fiasco the rampant rontierism of using public services and public money for instance, a friend who lives in um, Kilmarnock pointed out to me today that the uh, local SNP government in Glasgow is actually selling off the Kelvin Grove Gallery and the city halls, potentially to foreign buyers. You might have to correct me on this. So there's a deep contradiction whereby a nationalist and socially democratic movement is contradiction. It's contradicting its nationalism by selling off national monuments and contradicting its uh, social democratic ethos by neoliberalizing and privatizing state capacity in uh, state institutions. Um, and I think when we get to a point where the only thing really differentiating the Tories and the SNP is a sort of thin veil of rhetoric, um, and there's a similar commitment to, to a very similar set of um, neoliberal policies, which may be differ in degree, but not in kind, um, the, the rump of the British population, both middle class um, and the working class, are... You know, who rely on public services, the sort of border between England and Scotland, I think, becomes a bit more nebulous when we're looking at m- much the same problems. Kind of Nairn's idea about the 
potentials of oil and what it might do to kind of clash relations in in, in Scotland. I mean, they, these are some of the ideas of names that I think are very weak. Um, and you know, take the idea of this these delayed class formations and delayed political and social formations too far. You know, I mean, the idea that you could have this kind of new bourgeoisie developing in Scotland in the late 20th century and 21st century, that this would have a political repercussion in the development of a new type of nationalism and so on is just, I mean, for me, we've, we've kind of departed that period of historical development. And I think that that reality is borne out by contemporary politics, not just in Scotland, um, but also in Wales, also in, in, in different ways in, in um, Northern Ireland um, and so on. Like, I mean, you have, yeah, a kind of mini me, uh, of elite formations in devolved around devolved assemblies. I mean, Neon was a critic of devolution, but he kind of you have a quote in your article from him about this almost a sort of grey pathetic character of the post-devolution um, British political settlement. I don't. I, I sometimes wonder if it's another ultimately self-defeating triumph for the British state. The, the the devolution ton you know devolution um has exemplified what we've discussed about the new character of the elite newish of mm. this kind of horizontal relations between elites transnationalization but also within the state you know the it's in a lot of people's minds right now of course bank of england independence the unmooring of elite institutions from any kind of democratic accountability. I can't help now view devolution as part and parcel of these developments. The tragedy, um, I mean, I was reading an article the other day where someone on the kind of Labour left was saying, um, okay, for those of you on the left of the independence movement, we can all see that Scottish independence isn't an immediate prospect, which I agree with. So um, why not do the, the next best thing, which is federalism, right? Um, but I, my answer to that is I don't support independence because I'm an opponent of the constitutional settlement of 1707. I support <laughs> independence because I'm an opponent of the constitutional settlement of 1999. Because what we have now with devolution is an elite governing completely without responsibility. It's completely washed its hands of the state of the country. It only, you know, it secures its revenues by selling off and leasing yeah. off our national assets to transnational yeah. corporations, as you say. As an intermediary body, it is able to conststantly disavow class or material politics. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a it's a night it's a nightmare situation. Yeah, because there's, 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 authority. This, there's this sort of um, Pangea on the horizon um that allows for yeah this kind of presentism weirdly yeah. yeah um i mean in the in the anderson piece i kind of postulate that the the my ideal situation um would be for the united kingdom to break apart before you know reforming in some new unconsidered way Re like ridding itself of the uh, historical baggage of the uh, 17th and 18th century that that it might take a sundering to sort of contradictorily save any kind of union, um, which I think is distinct from a kind of technocratic labor federalism, which I was when I was younger quite keen on as a kind of middle way. But the lack of popular excitement or any kind of real urgency in terms of policy to enact that 
I think shows that it's a bit of a dead horse that we're flogging. If that was really a potentiality, I think it would have happened, even under the Conservatives. And there just hasn't been any momentum there. But then also, interestingly, in, in an oxymoronic way, the momentum in the independence movement is also flagging. And so we're left at this impasse on the British periphery. And I, I'm not a prophet, and I don't, I don't know where it's going to head. The, the frustration of politics in the current period is that civil society itself is so weak the crisis of associational life has become so profound. The working class in particular is so disorganised that all the remaining well-organised sect, I mean, so you say well-organised, all the British state needs to do is still be standing once various attacks on it have failed. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the really frustrating... Yeah, it's almost thing. like a, a Pascal's wager... Um constitutional Pascal's wager in that sense, whereby, yeah, it only needs to be stronger than the opposing forces by one or two percent to maintain itself. Um, again, I should I should clarify that I'm not anti a union between England and Scotland, but I am anti the historical legacy of the union we have, if that makes any sense. I actually was like quite keenly unionist in the 2014 referendum, but I think I've come to see the current historical and political and economic formation of our union as fundamentally untenable. I, th- I think that the the populist wind, um, along with the populist wind from Syriza and Podemos and Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, has sort of flown out of the SNP. And where it will land or how it will sort of re-manifest itself will be an interesting one. I mean, I, in one sense, I'm quite worried that the tearing, possible tearing asunder of the electoral coalition of the SNP between Maybe like three points, you know, the, the Tartan Tories under Kate Forbes, the sort of hyper progressives under Nicola Sturgeon and a kind of old left represented by potentially wings over Scotland or maybe like Ian McWhorter, that those are going to split off into three separate forces um, and that the rump of the deeply weakened rump of the UK state might play a sort of divide and conquer between those factions, which I don't think would be helpful or generative in any sense. To be honest, I wonder if it's more far gone than that. I mean, the, the question I keep asking myself is, are we going to be discussing Scottish nationalism as a, a populist force? You know, people, people until relatively recently spoke with great enthusiasm about its enormous, its sudden transformative power in Scottish politics, that it had yeah. overthrown a Scottish Labour Party, which had dominated Scottish politics for a, for gener- well, a generation. Yeah. Um, um, I remember Scott- being there at the time during, in 2015 and hearing from friends from Glasgow and stuff, you know, that the Labour Party had surrendered its class and national interests to an international neoliberalism and that it, you know, it was deeply corrupt on both the national and local level due to being this kind of electoral dictatorship that had such a stranglehold and hegemony over Scotland. And yet the same description, I think, can now be applied to the SNP. Absolutely. And you you have to... One wonders if there's a deeper structure at play here. With populism, um, I sometimes think that the the constant failure to come up with a diagnosis for populism might just imply that populism is what politics looks like now, right? This is what politics looks like when you've shed the, the traditional type of constituency-based, by which I mean class constituency-based political party. There's mm. nothing left but an attempt to construct polarizations and yeah. build your formation out of this. And we may well ask ourselves, like in a few years' time, the, the main talking point might not be, wow, you know, this rupture in British politics life. It might just be like, what uh, what the hell happened there? Right? Mm. We we need to come to terms with the fact 
that we had a kind of political dynasty in the blink of an eye, right? It, it suddenly appeared, seemed completely invincible, and then disappeared overnight. How do you explain that development? And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of predicting future and political I, I developments. Classic, a descriptive thing that you're talking about, going back to like bowling alone and uh, Anton Yeager's analysis of the kind of decline or decimation of mass parties and civic life, associational life, is confused by the sudden rapid you know, crisis in the SNP because for a good while it was a mass party that didn't reflect necessarily class interests, right? Like I think a, a thing I make a big deal about in that Jacobin piece is that, you know, the SNP can gain votes in wealthy West End, Glasgow suburbs, in deindustrialized, you know, Greenock or Dundee, bits of Dundee, and also in like rural Highland constituencies. Um, but it did have a kind of, I felt at least in 2014 when I was living in Scotland, a kind of, it was putting down deep associational and civic roots. And so the the ephemerality of that suddenly being exposed uh, this year, yeah, is is, is confusing. Uh, or it maybe speaks to the that we really are entering uh, a sphere of hyper politics or hyper individual in sort of individuated um, concern. And the the route back to um, any kind of mass politics, whether that be a class and material based politics or a broader kind of cross class coalitions based around a you know Schmittian idea of the uh, friend enemy distinction, um, is unclear. I mean for me I, I sort of feel like the 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 thesis about the crisis of associational life of people failing to manifest mass politics and mass organizations is sort of borne out by the rapid rise and fall of kind of populist projects, both um, separate parties and within legacy parties. Yeah. So Corbynism added on hundreds of thousands of members, and they've all been shed. Yeah. The you know the SNP did this. What this implies to me is that like we've lost the knack for that type of associational life. There was a brief period where the SN, SNP branches were full and so on. They've been deserted for recent years. The membership is a paper membership, and as we've recently yeah. found out, it's rapidly declining. Mm, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just... I think, and I think that goes back to the growing distance between um, British elites and the the, the, the mobilisation of the British populace, right? Like, I'm not a horizontalist leftist or an anarchist, right? I do accept that there has to be some kind of organisational hierarchy and some kind of cadres for a functional political project. But the, the I think increasingly the people filling those top spots in the SNP and in Labour are fundamentally disconnected from the masses that they're trying to mobilise. I mean, the reason in the piece I talk about these kind of refounding figures, I think I veer a little bit too much into great man history, but still, you know, I talk about Cromwell, I talk about Napoleon, Nasser, Lenin, Mao, um, not in any moral sense, obviously, we, we, I'm not going to go there, but in there, in the sense of being able to build both elite cadres and a kind of mass line that is you know, intimately connected between those two elements. Um, I'm just trying to like think back again anecdotally to like my grandparents' generation um, in Scotland who came from the kind of national bourgeois, um, manufacturing bourgeois, um, and then radicalised in the 50s and 60s under the, um, the tutelage of, I don't know if you know about George MacLeod uh, in the Church of Scotland and the sort of govern mission uh, in the 50s. But there was a you know there was a there was a radicalization of a kind of national bourgeois to the left in that period, um, and a kind of you know a deep immersion in national populist life. Um, and I think the gap there was obviously still a class gap there um, culturally, but the 
compared to now, I think that gap is really, really grown. And our ability to kind of form uh, working relationships between like leadership cadres and mass mass movements has been really, uh, really fractured by um, the last 20, 30 years. I was reading Philip Fair, who's a German historian who was talking about, for instance, in the uh, Italian Communist Party in the 50s, they had these the houses of the people, the Casa de Popolo which were, you know, essentially um, a combination of like a hotel, a bar, an inn, a youth club run by the Communist Party that would be packed out every night. And that idea of like a neighbourhood politicised institution that functions not only on the political level, but on the level of entertainment or socialisation is just so alien alien to someone who was born in the sort of late, mid to late 90s. It's not something I can really conceptualise. Yeah, to, to me, this is the central problem of contemporary um, politics. I'm not just saying this to whip out some dubious class credentials, but I suppose my grandparents were operating the construction of mass politics at the other end very yeah. much. And my granddad was an activist in the Labour Party, a trade unionist and mm. so on, and he was um, he would describe things to me that made no sense. The, the huge proliferation of working-class literature in his workplace, in his community, yeah. um, the power of the trade union in his workplace, the relations between his trade union and his political party were all things that just have no obvious reflection whatsoever in contemporary politics, which by comparison most people's engagement with politics i mean even for someone who you know people who are seasoned political activists or whose job in your your case you know write sort of essay writing brings you into constant con- contact with such political life as there is mm. the most dedicated political activists i know are engaged furtively it's there's nothing else you can do you couldn't survive the, <laughs> trying to throw yourself into party building, trade union building on a volunteer basis in the way that hundreds of thousands of people did. And outside of the working class and the left in the 20th century, you know, as you were discussing, huge institutions like the Kirk, which, if anything, their collapse overnight is even more astonishing. I mean, one thing I do keep an eye on is the disappearance of Scotland's stock of beautiful churches which Mm. is in the next 20 years we're about to lose half the beautiful buildings in the country and that's painful in its own way but they're empty you know um and apart from in the far-flung sort of reaches of the outer hebrides basically yeah um Yeah. yeah absolutely i mean that's that's where associational life has been has been chased to the margins and i think everything that we view in politics is and yeah i'm suspicious of like (laughs) <laughs> sort of a, a notion of a return with a, a V instead of a U, if you know what I mean, the kind of, you know, we must return. Um, it doesn't seem feasible to go back to manifestation of collective life in that way. We have to imagine something new. But of course, I'm stuck in my own periphery historical epoch. So it's, it's, it's almost, it feels to me impossible. It feels like imagining a new colour, primary colour, to actually imagine what a non-nostalgic vision of collective and associational life might look like. And yeah, obviously I'm not the one to do it. I'm just a writer. Um, I don't have good organisational skills in that sense. What what, um, I, what I do find infuriating is like what you referred to as kind of horizontalism is when people sort of fetishise our contemporary problems and turn them into um, positives. For many years that drove me crazy, but then I had it. <laughs> yeah. It's had something it. I've encountered deeply on the American left. Um, yeah. I actually think that is a plus point for the English left is that and the British left and the Scottish left is that we have less of a tendency to do that the American left seem to 
almost have this imbibed sense of libertarianism um, around, you know, issues become, yeah, they sort of reify issues into fetishes almost. And I do think that we are closer to a collective life than, say, the American left is um, within living historical memory. Um, and so it might be easier for us to reconstruct something rather than just embracing atomization as a kind of um, failed lib- sort of liberation or a, a mock liberation. But I, I think, is that what you're getting at? That atomization is kind of, um, you know, we, we, we cope with it by uh, sort of telling ourselves it's liberation. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and there's, there are so many kind of attempts to do that. And of course, you know, associated with the decline of public life is people turning inwards. So people can't, they feel that they, they can't be sovereign over public affairs, so they become sovereign over their own um, identity or their own expression or um, or whatever. So all these things yeah. are kind of interconnected, but it creates a situation where, in a sense, right, these are developments which uh, attack everyone equally. Like I'm not, in a certain yeah. sense, you know, I'm not sorry to see the decline of certain religious institutions or political parties on the right or whatever, right? Okay, they're hurt as well as the, you know, the socialist yeah. cause and the working class cause, except for one well two major forces of organization which by their nature don't suffer the same way from the decline of associational culture which is capital and the state capital and the state can pay for organization and it's infuriating because you can watch so much volunteer effort for the Scottish independence movement, the Corbynite movement, the recent strike wave, unions have a little bit more institutional heft still, but they are obviously suffering in, in, in terms of long-term development from the same problem. You yeah. know, and, and Brexit as well. I mean, the fact that the state was still in a position first to attempt to overturn the vote, but then, I mean, it's now remedying the vote in inches, right, by re-establishing networks in Europe and, and so on. So you have this permanent force for order in mm. society, which has the unique capacity to mm. use the exploitation of labor to fund its own political operation. And that's how we end up in a situation where, I mean, I think each of the challenges I've just described, they've almost, I mean, I, I don't think that Scottish, I mean, Scottish independence could have happened in 2014. And I think that missing out on that, not that we became came very close to winning the vote, but missing that chance basically meant it was over in the short and medium term in a way mm. that I think few of us really fully embraced at the time. Corbynism, I don't think, came close. Like, I think it fell at one of the relatively early hurdles in the enormous task in front of it of challenging the British state and British capitalism. So the horror of this situation yeah. is... It attacks lots of different political and social and cultural tendencies equally, but it leaves the worst ones intact and with this kind of mm. um, veto over so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a lot of thoughts. Um, I'm trying to separate them. One is that on the Brexit issue, it was interesting that in a way, at least to me, any kind of articulation of the potentiality for one national developmentalism on a social democratic or socialist model and two international a model of international solidarity that accepts the existence of nations but also accepts cross-class cross-material interests across nations essentially to me at least vacated the field 
And we had, in a sense, a Brexit proposed by a neoliberal libertarian Tory right, on the most part, um, that proposed a kind of Singapore on Thames, which was, you know, a model of um, asset stripping the entirety of the British country, apart from London, to allow London to better serve this international capital. Um, and a kind of softer version of that, a kind of mystified version of that um, from the Remain cause, which was... Um, you know, less explicit about global neoliberalism, but essentially uh, had similar priorities, um, but, you know, combined with uh, a level of social liberalism and workers' rights. Um, but yeah, any articulation either of a sort of left-wing Brexit option or of a um, left-wing radical reform, that sort of European federalist reformism, um, both of which I think could have been interesting options, um, were sort of absent from the field. Um, and so, we, yeah, we had this kind of competition between what one might call, um, yeah, uh, a nationalist, um, smaller bourgeois who were, you know, concerned with the effects that um, restrictions on imports or, and exports were going to have from leaving the EU and a larger kind of financial um, speculative class that, you know, was split either way. Um, so that's one thing. And then I, I was trying to think about this kind of comparative case for the decline of um, associational life and why Britain's has declined more than others. So, I, for instance, if we look at Germany or the Scandinavian countries, they have um, three, I think, unique bulwarks against so much of a decline. They have had decline, but less less so. One is this thing called the Mittelstand, um, which is this kind of very productionist, very manufacturing oriented, small and medium sized business strata that has historically been pretty strong in Germany. The second is this term pillarization, whereby all of civic and political life is organized around pillars. Um, so from your leisure club to the cinema you go to, to the party, to your church, like all of these are, are in separate pillars. So historically in Central Europe, it's been like the Protestant church, Catholic church, liberals, socialists, communists, and everything is kind of lined up vertically. And then the uh, the third thing is their kind of um, method of elite production um, in Germany is obviously regional. So one tends to attend a regional university and tends to sort of form local elites, which are, I think, again, less... Um, vulnerable to globalization and neoliberalism and so obviously germany has i think everyone has suffered in the west uh, and in the, the global north has suffered some level of associational decline but britain i think because of the way it historically developed and because it lacks some of those structures has you know really accelerated that decline further than say germany or france um, and i think that's an important distinction to make that the, the levels of alienation and atomization really do vary. Um, there's a spectrum here. Yeah, and, and in some regards, I suppose we can just say we're not in quite as bad a situation as the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and really... of course, you know, part of that history is just that there was a very effective and determined effort to break, you know, a culture of especially political association in Britain, you know, through the Thatcher project. And it didn't meet with, there were neoliberal offensives that didn't meet with quite the same level of um, effectiveness in other parts of Europe. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously France and Germany, the Netherlands, Italy have all gone through neoliberal pipelines. But yeah, I think this is where the Anderson, Nairn Anderson thesis comes into play is that they happened later, generally towards the late eighties and into the nineties. And they, that you have the effects on, what we might call post-war social democracy were less profound. Um, and I think that's something that maybe Edgerton would struggle to fully 
take sort of stock of. Um, so if you look at like, yeah, Italy, um, as case in point, right, like they had a mass communist party and even got a large social democratic party, both of which had large mass organizations. One could maybe put that down in a deterministic way to the influence of the Catholic Church um, and that model of associational life. But also we can go back to this Nan Anderson thesis that because Italy industrialized later, it entered modernity with a better view of how to cope with capitalist exploitation or industrial competition, for instance. And the same can be said of Germany, um, which you know both of these countries actually weren't formed into the 1870s. Um, and so both of them, I think the working class uh, and the theorists that were produced from those uh, countries had a better stake of developing a kind of you know, mass democracy in a way that Britain just didn't. Well, I think that brings us full circle back to, to Nian Anderson. So, um, Samuel, th- <laughs> thanks very much for your yeah, thoughts. Yeah. No problem. Um, ranged over quite a lot there. Um, the conversations I took us in, in directions I wasn't anticipating, but I think it was um, a really useful reflection on some of these theoretical ideas in the midst of all this uh, carnage uh, at the moment. So thanks very much for your, for your thoughts. Yeah, no, absolutely no problem. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot.com.